we have to stop trying to intellectualize our way out of our problems because the problems have a feeling footprint. So you can't think your way out of burnout. You can't think your way out of trauma. You can't, I can't even tell you how many books I have on topics that it's like, okay, if I just learn more about this, then I can understand diet culture and get out of that loop. And if I just read more about this, then I can break this bad habit or I can get out of this. We will never be able to intellectualize ourselves out of some of these challenges. We actually have to feel and heal our way out of them. You're listening to Now What? A podcast where we celebrate the human spirit by sharing stories of strength and resilience. For those going through hard times or looking to get inspired to change their own life, we're your hosts, Jen and Tisha. Hi, I'm Jen and welcome back to Now What? I'm Tisha, and this week we are here with Robin Hanley Defoe, and she is a resiliency expert. I should have said Dr. Robin Hanley Defoe, shouldn't I? Yeah. Um, do you want to just tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, of course. Well, first and foremost, thank you for this invitation to connect today. I was really looking forward to our time together. So thank you for this. Thank you for so coming. We've been- yeah, a wee bit about myself. So I, um, so I do study resiliency. It's something that I'm very interested in. I'm fascinated with our human condition. One of the things that I try to bring to my work and my scholarship, though, is how do we actually also incorporate personal story? So instead of it being just theoretical or just thinking of it kind of like, this is what it looks like, I'm very interested in hearing stories, making it very personable, and also exploring tools and strategies on how to foster and cultivate resiliency. How can we build it up versus this idea that we either have it or we don't have it? I'm really curious about how we can actually build practices to be able to help people get through the challenging uncertain seasons of their lives, whatever that might look like. Mm-hmm. We're kind of all we, getting through right now, right? Yeah. <laughs> We're mm-hmm. all getting through that, but everybody has challenging times in their life, yes. right? At some point. And we recorded an episode where I told my story and, or a part of my story. And I kind of started off by saying, you know, I'd always considered myself to be a resilient person because I'd been through a lot. I'd experienced a lot of trauma growing up. Um, And then I was diagnosed with cancer and I was completely unable to really deal with that and process that information in like a healthy way, Mm -hmm. which then just had me questioning, like, maybe I'm not resilient at all. Maybe Mm -hmm. I don't even know what resilience is Mm -hmm. really, because it is a word that I don't know, it's kind of thrown around Yes, that people use, which with like, I don't know, I think sometimes people use it to mean adaptable. And I'm wondering if those are the same Mm. things. Yeah, great question. And Tisha, first, I acknowledge the the bravery it takes to share story. Uh, That in itself is a a form of healing. It's a form of vulnerability. And I just want to honor that even right now you're sharing with me a little part of a story you've shared as with others, but I just want to thank yeah. you for trusting me with that information right now. And you're absolutely right. We get walloped in life in all different ways. And what we think about is the fact that, and this is actually what I think really differentiates my approach to resiliency compared to a lot of other scholars in the field, because what I'm curious about is really this notion of everyday resiliency. So resiliency isn't reserved for that diagnosis or that one big setback in your life. What I believe resiliency is, is all these different interconnections and intersections of decisions that we make every single day that really inform how we show up when we're faced with a big adversity. So when I hear you say, hey, I went through this trauma and I thought I was relatively resilient, but oh, wow, I got walloped again and I didn't feel as resilient. I would say that's absolutely this normal trajectory that we see because resiliency isn't actually consistent. It actually varies by day. It could even vary within the same day. You could wake up and feel really energized and focused and 
something can happen and all of a sudden we're questioning our capacity. We're feeling really even maybe a bit defeated or discouraged that we're not bouncing back or rallying as quickly as we want to. So when I think about resiliency, it is very much these daily decisions, it ebbs and flows. And by the very definition of resiliency, that's what it looks like. It's these, this capacity to show up, honor where you are and be able to make the next right decision. It's, it's interesting to hear you speak of it like that. Cause I feel like I'm in a, I don't want to call it a season because to me that seems like it goes on for a long time and it's kind of just starting. <laughs> so I don't want to put it there yet where I am, you know, I will wake up and feel energized and great. And then like something happens and it's like, I can't, you know, and I think I said when we first got on here, it's interesting for me to be talking to you because I'm not feeling super resilient these days. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think until like really feeling that and being able to put that into words, just in this last week or so mm-hmm. um, was the first time I really felt like I was able to acknowledge that it kind of does ebb and flow like so many other things yeah. as parts of being a human, right? Absolutely. And what's interesting about the work that I've done, because my my goal was never really to set out to like develop a theory on resiliency. Like that was never like one day it's like, ooh, I want to do this. What actually I found happened, it was, it was just these, these unfoldings. So as I was doing my work and meeting with people in so many different landscapes, different walks of life in different circumstances, I just started to see these patterns that became so, so explicit that I wanted to start to understand them better. And again, that notion of some days we have it, some days we don't, what is this mysterious thing about resiliency? And when we started to actually try to dig deep, to really start to operationalize it in a way that we could then work with it so we could be of service and support to people who need that. What we actually identified was that resiliency really created this like constellation of five different traits. And depending on where we are in those experiences, it's going to change on what it feels like. And I'd be happy to tell you a wee bit about those if you're curious. Or, I am. Uh, I was just going to ask, could you tell us the five yeah. traits? <laughs> yeah. Perfect. Yeah, absolutely. Happy to. Um, so what we first came upon is this idea of belonging. So when we meet resilient people or people that are able to to rally or be able to kind of navigate the next right decision, the number one thing we notice is that they have a home team. So they have people in their corner that they trust, that are looking out for them, that they feel even responsible to also protect. So where we have this sense of belonging creates what we call psychological safety. And from our psychological safety, then we can battle the world. Then we can take on the challenges. Now, I often let folks know that belonging, it's not a static or finite experience. It's actually a season of hellos and goodbyes. So there may be people earlier earlier in their life that are going to really be that person for us, that home team, that safe place. And then as we age and learn and grow and evolve, we might develop new home teams, new places where we um, have community and we feel safe and we can then take those risks to you know, face the world. So belonging is the first one. The second tier we talk about is, is actually perspective. And often we think about this as like a mindset or an attitude. But when I look at persons with resilient practices, perspective to me is actually an alignment between their head and their heart. Like they're able to see the world, but they also feel and how they show up has this really amazing blend of being within their values. So again, understanding how we see things, how we interpret information, but also how we are responsive to what's going on. Now, the third tier that we talk about in my work is the role of acceptance. This is probably the most interpreted part of my work. Because often when people hear acceptance, it means that we have to deal with it. We have to get over, we just have to like figure it out, get through it. And when I talk about acceptance, what I'm referring to as understanding our, first of all, deciphering our controllables, understanding what you can control and what you can't control, and then making the decision to actually find a way for that experience to coexist. So it's accepting that we have to carry it with us. We make space for our grief. We make space for our trauma. And there's some things that we'll just never kind of get over. And there's some things that 
we might not want to ever lose, especially when we think of grief and loss. We want to carry parts of that with us. It's part of our story. So acceptance is really that decision to coexist with what we're facing. And then we move over to the fourth, which is hope, choosing to live hope-filled. It's finding ways to cultivate and foster that sense that come what may, we'll find a way through. And the last area is actually humor, lightheartedness, joy, play, laughter. Um, we all know that uh, in difficult seasons, it's sometimes hard to hold on that merriment or that feeling of lightheartedness. Mm -hmm. But what we actually know is it serves a really important biological function. So for example, when you laugh, your body releases a natural tranquilizer. So for that moment in time, your pain receptors are blocked, which means you can catch your breath. And then we make the next best choice. So that's what I see in my work. It's a very different approach than thinking about it as like grit or toughness or stoicism. It's really this lovely dance of honoring where we are, showing up and making the good choices. Mm -hmm. So are we born with it? Yeah, Tisha's a great question. My, my first response is absolutely not. Uh, absolutely not. It is something where we're born with a biology, like a biological resiliency. We know that, right? We know there are certain biological tendencies that contribute to hardiness or things, especially when we think about newborns. What I talk about in terms of developmental resiliency, it can be cultivated, it can be fostered, we can teach it, we can reinforce it, we can improve upon it. It's actually skill sets. And we bring those skill sets mm -hmm. together that informs how we show up. Yeah, that that to me is is so fascinating as um, as a parent and as yeah. a teacher. Yes. That idea that that we can teach it, that we can foster it. How do we do that? Oh, such a good question. You're asking the juicy and even questions. for myself, like, yeah. how do I do that? I know. I, I want to know how do I do that? Because I feel yeah. like I'm not right now. Right. <laughs> Jen, I hear that. And what I think about is, is I think where we, especially when we're in acute stress, when we're in acute distress, it looks different than when we're in a, a pretty, um, pretty balanced season, right? So when we're kind of doing all right in a pretty balanced season, we then take some risks, right? We do healthy risk-taking to push kind of those outer limits of what we can do and what we can explore. And we kind of navigate through the idea of bravery, like we're safe, but we try new things. And that really gives us this idea about, you know, sometimes we'll fail, but we bounce back and we rally and we figure it out. That's a different approach to when we're actually in a hurting season or a heavy hearted season. And when we're in a heavy hearted hurting season, that's when we actually have to really dial in systems of self-care because the heart of resiliency when we're in a hard season is that we actually have to do self-care. We actually have to hold space and honor what we're experiencing, meet it with curiosity, compassion, and courage. Um, Dr. Susan David writes about that. We meet it with curiosity, compassion, and courage. And that looks like very simple systems. And when I say simple, I don't mean it like as in it's easy. I mean that it's very practical. So for example, when we're going through a very acute, stressful time, like many of us are right now as parents, as you know, even just as members of society, we're worried, we're almost careworn with everything that's going on in our world right now. So how we foster resiliency this time of the year while we're like this is actually through systems, self-care systems. So even just by, you know, waking up and setting the intention of what kind of day you're going to have. So for example, today's a Thursday. So you'd wake up and say, okay, is today going to be a thrilling Thursday where we're going to get lots done? Or does today need to be a tender Thursday? And I just have to go a little bit lighter today. So it's really just honoring what your body is able to do that day and not knowing those emotions and our emotional awareness really plays a role here. And our emotions are, um, it's data. It gives you data to let you know how you should be walking in a way that's meeting and honoring how you're feeling. So often, sometimes we think about emotions as directives or, you know, it makes us kind of do something emotions are data. And it's just really starting our mornings in a way that we're practicing a gentle awareness. Mm -hmm. There was something you said there about like, is this going to be a thrilling Thursday where I get lots done or a, a tender Thursday? Mm -hmm. And that element really 
has been a huge part in like my post-traumatic growth because I became really focused on productivity. Yes. And trying to go, 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 go. And trying to push myself to keep going and, and keep doing things. And there is, there can be a sense of accomplishment, of course. which would sometimes make me feel good. If I had a list and I got everything done, then I felt great about that. But some days I couldn't get all of that done. And that was really hard for me. Like I really would beat myself up mm-hmm. about why can't I get it done? And why didn't I get it done? And, and I would take that almost as, you know, as a personal failing. Yes. And so it's been a huge part of my learning to just be like, you know what, sometimes it's okay to sit with it. Sometimes yes. it's okay to have a tender day yes. where you don't get a lot done. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's value in that too. Absolutely right? like, there is. Yes. And yes. I'm assuming that somebody is li- somebody else is listening and, and feeling the same as me because I have some perfectionist tendencies and I run a little anxious and that makes me feel like I have to go, 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 go. Um, and it's, it became really detrimental. It it did Mm -hmm. get to a point where it was really, um, making me worse. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If that makes sense. Um, so just hearing you said, I was like, Oh, Mm -hmm. I get that. Mm -hmm. I really do. Um, and I, I post quite a bit about like today I'm resting. Yeah. Yeah. You're and absolutely like, right. You're absolutely right. I'm just right. giving myself that grace to kind of say the dishes will be mm-hmm. there later. Mm-hmm. See, and I give myself right? too um, much grace. I feel like with that. It's so hard. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. 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 You know what? I'm told like you, Robin, you had posted something and it was going back a few weeks ago, but it was a story on Instagram that I watched that really hit home with me. And you were talking about this idea that sometimes we think that we're entitled to, <laughs> I don't know, eat the junk food or yeah. we're entitled to sit down and watch that TV show, yeah. but how that can get away from us. Yes. Will you tell me a little bit about that? <laughs> or tell sure us a little yeah. more about that? Yeah, 100%. So just to circle back, just to close that kind of loop about what you're saying about that urgency, that sense of busyness, that urgency, that productivity, (laughs) that's actually a, a absolutely normal response when we've actually gone through really abnormal events. If we stay busy enough, we can keep those emotions lower. Mm -hmm. We can just keep busy enough that we don't have to feel anything. We don't have to sit with anything. And we can almost like exhaust ourselves out of then having to do that hard work. And that's a completely normal response. But I would also say it's actually really, it's, it's pretty normal coping. Uh, it's not something that we should feel shame about because it actually gets us through because sometimes the big hurts, we can't handle it all at once. So we stay busy enough just to let our body start doing some of that natural healing and growing and learning. And then when we get a little bit kind of more balanced and a little bit more regulated, then we can start slowing a little bit down, but we have to do it in a way that actually honors the struggle. We can't do it all at once because we're just going to get overwhelmed with all of the feelings Mm -hmm. and it'll actually make us feel more anxious. So I think it's this again this this rhythm this flow where we think about our busyness but then we consciously decide that we're going to wind down a little bit and what I let people know is often we operate in extremes right we're either like dialed in a high sense of urgency knocking all the things over or we're like 20 hours deep into Netflix like it's either like one or the other I've been both. (laughs) Exactly. And what I think the goal is, is just to like, I like to think about it this way, Tisha, is just to soften the edges, like just soften the edges. We don't have to like get everything into balance and totally calibrate everything. Let's just soften the edges a little bit. So that way it doesn't feel so extreme when we're kind of flowing from one to the other, because that just contributes to feeling a little bit out of control. So just honoring the fact that we want to just soften the edges and meet ourselves where we are. 
sort of mm -hmm. answer your question about the whole um, idea about um, some of the symptomology <laughs> that we see with burnout and compassion fatigue is this phenomena of self-entitlement. And I'll let you know, my golly, when I posted that, I did not realize the hornet's nest that I was kicking over. Um, because there are some people that, um, that they found that concept quite startling. And I'll tell the folks or those who um, are curious about this concept. So what when we start to live in depletion, and we're of service, and we're doing things for everyone else, and then finally, we do get a little bit of a break, right? Finally, the world pauses long enough for us to catch our breath. Sometimes we can get stuck in this mind trap that we call self-entitlement that basically uses all of the hard work we do, the good service we do, or even just the grief and trauma that we carry to then say, you know what? I do so much good in the world. I deserve you know, that second bottle of wine, or, you know what, I'm justified chirping at that person because like, oh my gosh, I do so much good work. Or, you know what, I might have to work tomorrow morning, but you know what, I'm going to watch my eighth episode of this show, even though it's three in the morning, because you know what, I'm an adult and you know what, this is my life. And we're listening to like Bon Jovi in the back of our mind saying, this is my life. And if I want to do this, I'm going to do this. Unfortunately, it's a slippery slope into self-sabotage. That's the, that's the key that I try to let people mm -hmm. know. And as an educator, I, I'd flag it for us that it's a very common behavior that we see educators do on the weekends, right? On the weekends, they go so hard of service to everyone. Then all of a sudden the weekends are just like, you know what? I'm entitled to this. And it's not to suggest we can't party with the purpose or enjoy our rewards and those treats. It's when it becomes that slippery slope to self-sabotage where we're actually like um, creating a resistance against the system that's burning us out, but instead we're actually hurting ourselves in the process. We're not changing the mm -hmm. system, we're actually hurting ourselves. Uh, so that's that notion of self-entitlement. Mm -hmm. I feel like- that a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I really, and then when Jen was like, yeah, and I just like, yeah, I'm, I'm gonna rest. It kind of reminded me that I'd seen that post. Um, I definitely will stay up too late watching TV when I finally have quiet mm -hmm. and, you know, the kids are in bed and yeah. my husband goes to bed and I have some time to myself. Yeah. I might say, okay, you know what? I'm going to sit down and watch a sitcom and then watch like five episodes, yeah. which in turn, um, then maybe I stay up a little too late and I'm a little tired the next day which also can then spiral to impacting my mental health because I'm not getting the sleep, but I feel like I deserve yeah. to have watched yeah. the show. Heck um, yeah. And so, to have had that alone time. Like, yeah. I feel like I've earned it. I deserve my quiet yeah. and I deserve time to do whatever it is I feel like doing. Yes. I think that's And if probably, that means watching. I feel like it's probably common with moms. Mm -hmm. Yes. You know what I mean? Because like, yeah. especially like moms who are at home or when you've got small kids and you're doing all of the things for them, all you know, and you yeah. do, you get that peace at the end of the day. Like mm -hmm. I like definitely resonate with that. And mm -hmm. so my question would be, how do you find your way out of that? Mm -hmm. So I, my suggestion is first and foremost, I would, I would never want anyone for a single moment to feel any shame about that behavior. All right. right. Shame is the most useless emotion. It won't change your behavior. It won't correct it. It won't motivate it to uh, improve it. So there's no point if you're sitting there going, oh my gosh, that's me. Shame does not help in this situation whatsoever. One of the strategies I offer to people and also try to practice myself is that Again, it's those behaviors in, in, in moderation. So I'll say to myself, for example, I won't do it two nights in a row. You know what, if I need that one night on Friday night where it's like, you know what, it's going to be, you know, eight hours of TV and my favorite little treats, creatures of comfort, and I'm going to do that. That's great, but I'm not going to do it two or three nights in a row. Right. So again, this idea of just pacing mm -hmm. yourself, you know, and again, I think it's really great to have those moments to be unproductive and not feel guilty to literally just like suspend responsibility and just enjoy that. And I want you to have that escapism. It serves a purpose, you know, and what's actually quite interesting is when we think about the shows that we tend to get, we get watching um, the ones 
I think one of the reasons why we're so drawn into watching more of them is that they're so formulaic, right? There's like, especially like the crime shows, right? There's a crime that happens. Then there's like two or three little, you know, hiccups or sidetracks, but boom, then they solve it at the end of it. And we feel closure and we just love what it feels like to have that sense of completion. So then we go do it again. So understanding that there's a pattern and what we're actually looking for is actually some control, right? We're looking for order. We're looking for things to make sense versus the chaos that is our real lives. So just understanding how that's like, just kind of giving you this little dose of completion. It's giving you that dose of like, okay, there we go. And it feels good. And one of the reasons, and sorry if I'm tangenting on you here, one of the other no. things this is about, I think, is the fact that so much of our days are spent multitasking, right? We have so many balls up in the air, so many pushes and pulls. And then when you finally get that focus and that stillness to watch a program, it actually just feels good to sit with time on task, even if the time on task is, is watching 18 episodes of a show. So I think that really just brings a sense of control and order. Yeah. There's nothing wrong mm-hmm. with that. And it makes sense when we aren't feeling like we necessarily have control or that there is order. Like I was saying, sometimes I watch like sitcoms and they also have a formula. Very formulaic. Right? There like there's always sort of a res- <laughs> Right. Like there's always that resolution at the end. And, and I think you're right. I mean, they're sort of predictable mm-hmm. in a way that real life isn't sometimes yeah. <laughs> or I'll just watch the same show over and out like the same series I'll be like oh I finished that let's go back to the beginning because yeah. I yeah you know, I love to watch movies I've already seen before yeah mm-hmm. <laughs> well I, I again my film nerd it is was coming out there's nothing wrong with that uh, <laughs> yeah of course not of you course will always not. find something different in a good movie yeah I think those are those are really good tips I love it Thank you. I'm enjoying this conversation so much. Oh, I'm glad. Yeah. yeah. And but, the, other, um, the other little suggestion, if I could make, so the yeah. one idea is just yeah. to balance it, right? So if we're going to do it on the weekend, maybe one night in the weekend and we can look forward to it, right? It's something that we look forward to. It's that free time, that suspending responsibility. The other suggestion is to see if you could like mix it up a little bit. So it doesn't have that same like repetitiveness to it. So for example, you know, maybe one night you stay up a wee bit late watching some shows and maybe the next night, maybe you read, read a book, right? And there's that amazing feeling that happens when we can kind of get lost and transformed in a great book series. So again, just finding that variation because all of our different self-care practices, they provide nutrients and nourishment in different ways. So, you know, the TV does it in one way, but then, you know, finding stories or getting lost in music or art or doing other activities, just give us more opportunities to have moments to express how we're feeling. So for example, um, one of my favorite kind of books is I love historical fiction. I have no idea why I literally can get lost in a historical fiction novel. So again, just finding different ways of meeting some of those needs because we don't always know what they are, but we feel them when they're satisfied, right? When we find something that satisfies it, it's like, Ooh, I was missing that, that missing that predictability or that order or that sense of control, or even just creating a wee bit of resistance against the system that's making us work so hard with all this invisible labor. Yeah. Ooh, invisible labor. Mm. And it's interesting that you say that because it's also so personal. Yes. Like the idea of trying different things, because what one person feels is satisfying or is giving them that self-care that they need might not work for somebody else. 100%, 100%. And I actually, I would say one of my um, active discoveries that I've come upon as a scholar during this last 14 months of COVID really actually speaks to what you're just talking about in terms of that notion about like what self-care actually makes us feel satisfied, like what self-care actually helps. So if you were to like, you know, Google mom's self-care strategies or whatever, you're going to get things like, you know, running, exercise, yoga, talking to a friend, like you're going to get this really prescriptive kind of suggestion. This is what you ought to do. Now, what's interesting is that 
it doesn't, it, we don't do those behaviors a lot of the time. Like we sometimes get a little bit of traction, but we don't actually sustain self-care practices. So one of the kind of goals, lofty goals that I tried to work with this past year was figuring out like what creates that feeling of sufficiency with self-care to the point where we're going to do it consistently because it actually is meeting our needs. All right. So we can, you know, join fitness classes. We can do all of that stuff, but it always ebbs and flows. Like we don't have that sustain uh, that staying power with it. So one of the kind of, as I said, the act of discovery I came upon was this first, before we do any form of self-care, we need to identify what is the feeling that we're looking for? What is the feeling that you're looking for? So if you say to me, Robin, I'm just feeling so sluggish, right? I just want energy. Then I'm going to say, okay, the self-care we're going to do is we're going to get you outside, right? Vitamin N, as Dr. Robert says, we're going to get you outside in fresh air. That's going to help give you energy. If you say to me, you know what, Robin, I have been working remotely and I've been literally shooing my children away from all of these Zoom calls and I feel like a terrible mother, that self-care might look like making some muffins and sitting with your kids and watching Paw Patrol. That's what the self-care might look like because it's time in your values. So if you value being a present parent, but you've been shooting, shooing your children away, going out mm -hmm. for a run or doing a yoga class isn't going to make you feel better. What's going to make you feel better is when you actually get that cuddle and you let them know that you're spending time with them, quality time with them. So my big kind of invitation for folks to think about is before you jump into any self-care practice, bring top of mind what you want to feel and then go build a behavior that's going to actually help you feel that, that will elicit that feeling because that's a game changer. And then you don't have to schedule it or try to remember or reinforce it because it's yeah. naturally reinforcing. Well, and I love how you put it as like time in your values. You, we don't talk about self-care like that. You know what I mean? Like that's There's, not, that's not how self-care is put out there. You know what I mean? Well, if you look at self-care in the media, they're going to tell you that it's like, go to a spa. it's going to the spa. It's buying a new lipstick. It's doing your hair. It's buying new clothes. And that's BS. I'm gonna, I feel like I shouldn't swear because you're a professional, but like, that's bullshit. Oh God, that's no, not, no, 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 swear away. I love swear. <laughs> Okay. It's a miracle Sometimes we I swear on the yet. podcast. Let's be real. It's a miracle but I haven't yet. It is, it is bullshit because that's yeah. not necessarily what's going to satisfy that need for you. 100%. And it's that emotional awareness when we recognize what is our value. And this is the thing often when we talk about even things like burnout, burnout isn't necessarily the scope and the volume of the work. It's not necessarily all the, the invisible labor. Burnout is when we're actually not living in our values, that we're not filling up our mm -hmm. tanks, we're not nurturing and meeting ourselves in a tender, respectful way. That's when we start to burn out. Otherwise, you know, because we would burn it, like we would have more of a marker. And what I mean by that, we would be able to say, okay, people who work for more than 55 hours, boom, that is the definition of burnout. And this is, we see depletion. But then we see people like I, for example, you know, when I'm working with high-performance athletes, they'll spend enormous amounts of time in their craft and we don't see them getting burned out the same way. It's because it's passion driven. It's within their values. It's what, where they want to be. So again, I think the missing piece to these conversations about self-care is time and values. Jen, you're absolutely right. Yeah. And we, um, as you're talking, I keep thinking about this episode that we just recorded and the woman had actually experienced burnout and one of the things that she says in her episode is she's like, I'm just going to lay this out here. I hate yoga yeah. because she was being told that she needed to invest in self-care and that something that was going to help her was going to be yoga. Yeah. So she kept trying to go to yoga and trying to trick herself into thinking that she liked it and trying to make herself believe that she was having a good time. And she's like, I wasn't having a good time. <laughs> and maybe that's that that piece maybe was missing for mm -hmm. her in that way that wasn't her thing yeah and a fascinating thing I agree wholeheartedly with that and the other piece that I would also contribute to that point is this idea that when what happens sometimes is again we hear these people that say we ought to or we should 
and then we go do it and then we feel even more isolated right we feel even more isolated disconnected mm -hmm. yeah. and even starting to kind of uh, tiptoe towards the feeling of even unbelonging right that that we don't here's another place where I don't belong here's another place where I don't fit in and when I think about how we find that ability to recover. We find that ability to bounce back from things like burnout. And this is kind of, again, it's a pretty radical idea and I don't mean it to be, but like we have to stop trying to intellectualize our way out of our problems because the problems have a feeling footprint. So you can't think your way out of burnout. You no. can't think your way out of trauma. You can't, I can't even tell you how many books I have on topics that it's like, okay, if I just learn more about this, then I can understand diet culture and get out of that loop. And if I just read more about this, then I can break this bad habit or I can get out of this. We will never be able to intellectualize ourselves out of some of these challenges. We actually have to feel and heal our way out of them. Yeah, absolutely. And I think like you, the way you were talking about the episode where she should do yoga and you should be like, we are always, you talk about it a lot kind of in the entrepreneurial space and, and in business, like don't shut all over yourself. Like don't do the things you should do. Not that you don't do them, but like you shouldn't be leading your self-care practice. That's nothing in your values should feel like a should. Yes. You're absolutely right. Yeah. You know, it's the things that you actually truly want at your core to be doing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I definitely would say that I went through a period of time where I had to really reflect on what my values were yes. because I kind of lost my way just in, in motherhood and working and struggling and just trying to get myself established and into like a stable place in my life that all of a sudden I was just trying everything that I thought I was mm -hmm. supposed to do. And I definitely went through this period where I kind of had to sit down and say, okay, what do you think is important? Yes. Because I was listening to all the things, you know, and we're talking a lot about motherhood, but I was listening to all the things that like a good mom does yes. or that good parents do and thinking I had to do all of them. Mm -hmm. And really, I just had to kind of sit down and say, okay, well, what do I think? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What is my actual value? you and I'm just gonna say that's not no. necessarily easy no no well that we've been groomed <laughs> and conditioned since we were like totally. toddlers to have this vision of what a good mother does or a good caregiver a good supporter a good grown-up does right so we've been bombarded with messages and like we pick up these little memos all the way through our lives that we yes. then get adulthood and say like, oh, this is what we're supposed to be doing. And, um, and Tisha, I can share an example with you. Like I'd say probably like four or five months into COVID. Um, I remember sitting and we have three teenagers, so they're older. And uh, I remember we were like, okay, we're supposed to be doing puzzles. Like that's what families are supposed to be doing. So I got a bunch <laughs> of puzzles and there we were sitting around the table and we were just like, finally, it was like every night we were chipping away, chipping away, chipping away. And then finally it was just this moment where I'm like, okay, hold on life pause. I'm like, is anyone enjoying this right now? And they're like, mom, we're, we're just doing this for you. This is not what we would choose to do, but we're supporting your big idea that you want to do puzzles. And I'm like, I'm doing puzzles because I'm pretty sure I thought I'm supposed to do puzzles because everyone on Instagram was doing puzzles. And the kids are like, do you want to go watch Ted Lasso? And I said, yes, I do. And we literally like <laughs> threw out the puzzle and we piled up on the couch and we watched a totally inappropriate sitcom as a family of five. And it was awesome. And I loved it. And we should have done it sooner. Yeah. And it's so easy to fall into those traps, isn't it? it sure of is. thinking that. Yes. And then it's leaving us depleted. You're absolutely right. And it actually creates some, um, it's interesting. It actually plays with our psychology from an evolutionary perspective, because what it does is it actually creates this feeling of scarcity, right? We're scared if we don't do this, then our children will not be able to be fully developed or um, adjusted or be able to do these things if we don't do these things for them. So we're operating against this system of scarcity. 
And when we operate from scarcity, we're not making good choices. We're not thinking about community. We're not thinking about wholeheartedness. We're not thinking about really showing up because what we're basically trying to do is defend the camp, right? We're defending the future for the children versus operating from a place as a parent of sufficiency, right? Where, you know what? You're going to get as much as you're going to get. What's meant for you will find you. We're going to work it out together really think about that idea as a parent of being a supporter versus a rescuer, that I'm going to walk with you through this, that we have enough to be able to make the good choices. So again, understanding how that scarcity mentality can push us into that, trying to make sure we don't miss out or Mm -hmm. we don't miss an opportunity for our child. Well, and it Mm -hmm. it feels like there's a lot of fear mongering almost in when you're talking parenting, Yeah. right? Mm -hmm. And I don't Mm -hmm. know... I mean, we all participate in it in some way, shape or form, of course, but I don't know if it's just personality wise or because I was, uh, I think I was a little bit, a little bit older, had been a little bit more places when I had my kids that when it came to certain things, like eating is a big thing. I don't Mm. care if they eat, I give them the food and I don't care if they eat it where that is a big pain point for most moms. I know you have to eat your vegetables and you have to eat this and you have to eat this where I'm like, this is dinner, eat it or don't. I don't care. There's nothing else. And there's this fear that like your kids won't develop or you're not being a good parent over a meal, but it is so intense for, I know I'm in the minority in my own personal approach to it. Like there's just so much fear around it. And so many, and I think that applies to so many things in life, but especially when you're talking parenting. Yeah. Oh, 100%. And uh, the the shoulds, the ought to is what we're supposed to do. We actually jokingly refer to this as like jargon monoxide. Like there is literally so much jargon out there that we should be doing, we ought to be doing that it's actually to the point where I'm pretty sure it's probably toxic, right? That there you can't Absolutely. find information that's actually accurate. So that's why it's so important, especially as a, as a mother and a caregiver is to actually honor your wisdom, honor the wisdom that's in your bones, that you know, Jen, what's best for your kids and trust that. And again, I think that is something that comes with our confidence as women, as we find our power and we learn to say, you know what, I'm okay. Cause I don't have to defend these decisions to anyone else. At the end of the day, the children are loved. They feel safe. Um, that's what it's going to come down to. Um, you know, I, we, it's funny, my children, we kind of grew up with this running joke about the fact that I let them know very early. Like I'm talking about like when they were toddlers, I'm like, I need you to know, I'm not going to, I'm not a perfect mom. I need you to know mommy, mommy says bad words. Mommy will, you know, drop the ball. Sometimes mommy might forget something, but I need you to know I'll always show up for you. And I'll be, I'll say, I'm sorry. If I drop the ball, I'll say, I'm sorry. And we're going to learn from it. We won't make, we won't waste a mistake. We'll learn from it. We'll figure it out. And I said, but I will not be perfect, but I promise you. And I looked at those three little faces and said, I promise you that I will be here. Like I'll be present. I'll be with you in the bumps and the bruises, the setbacks. I won't be perfect, but I'll be present to offer you as much as I can to walk with you during this journey. And I'll be your biggest supporter. And I always let them know, like, I love you more than genetics requires me to, right? I let them know that like (laughs) our, our genetics and our DNA sets us up that we love our kids. So we like, obviously look after them, but I always let my kids know, I actually probably a bit more than I have to, that's how much I'm going to stand by you. And it gives both of us, the children and me, that spaciousness that we can be ourselves. And that's what I think is a real gift that we can offer our children, especially in uncertain seasons, like we're going through Mm -hmm. right now with COVID and all these world events, giving the children spaciousness that you be you, I'll be me. And we're going to do our very best to find a way to braid this together. And you don't have to walk alone. That is so poetic. I loved all of that. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. Just while we're talking about kids giving them that spaciousness one of the things that people often say about kids and and I've said it is that kids are resilient and in talking about these times or moving transferring schools people go through a divorce whatever it is big transitions happen in kids lives and people just go oh kids are resilient um what are what are your thoughts on that 
I think that kind of speaks to this idea that like, you know, going through difficult times makes us resilient, right? It makes us stronger going through the struggle. And my argument on that is going through adversity doesn't make you stronger. Healing, learning, doing the work around that Mm -hmm. adversity is actually what makes you more resilient. So simply going through bad times will not make you stronger. If anything, it could actually make you meaner. It can make you angrier. It can make you more callous. It can make you cruel. When we go through hard times, when we don't take the time to learn and to heal. So the hard times don't make us resilient. It's learning (laughs) and healing from it is what makes us resilient. So are are children adaptable? Yes they don't have a lot of life experience to draw upon, right? They don't have this moment where they're like, oh, well, I had 10 years at this school and that felt really grounding and really stable, right? They're like, oh, well, last year I was at this school, lasted for a year or two, and now I'm at this school. Like they don't have enough life story yet to be able to then really kind of put, wrap their head around what's happening. So mm-hmm. their world is always growing. It's always expanding. So for sure, kids are adaptable. But trauma left unaddressed isn't going to make you resilient. It's when you do the work is when you actually can bounce back from it in a meaningful way. And I often tell people that, you know, those difficult seasons and just kind of writing off that children ought to be okay is actually probably doing a bit of a disservice. Just honoring that when we know our children have had setbacks and challenges and abrupt uh, changes like you described there. We just want to make sure that we always keep that little bit of a weathered eye for when we start to see some, maybe some maladaptive behavior or those things that are like, oh, okay, we want to be careful about that. And then make sure that we get them the support that they need. So we want to be proactive about addressing when the children show us in their own time that now they're ready to unpack that. Now they're ready to explore it. Um, It's not going to necessarily just kind of go away on its own. I think people underestimate, you know, when a child does go through something hard, that their response and how it comes up is going to evolve and with their ability to process it. Mm -hmm. Like my then four-year-old didn't have any scope to process the loss of his father, you know, and we're almost two years later now and, and that's evolving and it will evolve his whole life. And, and I think It's hard, I think, for adults to kind of like make those connections. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Jen, what I'm hearing, sorry, you cut out a wee bit there, but what I'm hearing is you're absolutely right. So at four, you can't process that. There's no, there's no world enough experience to be able to understand what that looks like. So that's going to be essentially this kind of this learning that we have to go with it. Every age and stage, we're going to have to find a way to reconcile with it. And again, it's not that we get over it. We just learn to coexist with it. We just learn that this is one of the things that I have to navigate and it's not right or wrong or good or bad. It just, it just is. It's just, this Mm -hmm. is, this is what we're going to navigate. This is part of our story. And I do also believe though, that what is the big differentiator for children getting through difficulty is, is having that one consistent, reliable caregiver or person in their world that they can look to and they just nod and say, you're safe, right? You're safe. It's okay. Right. You need that one consistent, reliable adult in your life. And what's interesting is the research backs it up. We don't need a tribe. We don't need an army. We do not need a squad. We need one person that we believe come what may is in our corner that they will look after me no matter what. It's that one person that we're emotionally attuned with that is going to be the difference in whether or not we get through this unscathed. Yeah. I've, I've heard that before. And, and sometimes I think that one person is a parent and sometimes it's, it's maybe not. Am I correct? You're absolutely right. And that's actually what makes me a wee bit worried about a lot of our children out of educational systems right now with the current landscape in our province, because for some children, the one consistent, caring, loving adult in their world is their teacher. teacher, Yeah. And -hmm. they're away from their teacher right now. And, you know, I, My heart goes out to teachers that are in the kinder to the 12. They they carry enormous amounts of responsibility. They are that one consistent, reliable adult that's going to hold them accountable. The one that's going to say like, hey, I have expectations of you. You don't just get to float through here. You got to show up. You got to learn. You got to engage. And there's Mm -hmm. some children that go through life with nobody 
nobody encouraging them to say, no, no, come on, you know, these are the rules. I'm going to hold you to these rules. It's absolutely paramount that children have that. I'm speechless. <laughs> oh, bless your heart. Oh, there you go. Well, I, teachers are, teachers are extraordinary. And I love even, um, you know, when I talk to people from all different walks of life, all different backgrounds, we always end up at some point getting to that conversation about that one teacher that we think yeah. back on so yeah. fondly, you know, that one yeah. teacher where we're like, Oh, you know what, that year, that was the year that made a difference. And what yeah. I, yeah, when I'm working with my teacher candidates, cause I still support the school of education at the university. I, I always challenge them. I said, I, I challenge you to be that teacher for the child that no other teacher is trying to do that for right? It's easy to be like, have that moment with the easy student, right? The student that's yep. smiling yeah. and eager in front row, you know what? Yeah. Go for the student that no other teacher is going to invest in because that child mm -hmm. is going to be the one that changes your life. Mm -hmm. That child will be the one that, you know, at the end of your career, you look back and say, you know what? That was something special. Go for the student that no other teacher wants to go for. And again, not yeah. that we're pitting teachers against each other or students against each other, but the most transformational experience you'll have with a teacher is when you believe in somebody who the rest of the world has given up on. Yeah. And those are the people that usually go on to change the world too. Those students. 100%. <laughs> you know? 100%. Yeah. Yeah. And just having that one adult really can make such a difference. And I know my husband is a teacher he's teaching longer than I have. And he teaches kids who are older. Mm -hmm. Like I, I've spent most of my career in kindergarten one, two, and they're not that old yet. Um, <laughs> but my husband has taught kids who are now parents themselves or who are graduating university, they're older. And the number of kids who reach out to him it's mind boggling. He's totally that teacher. My husband is totally that teacher. Yes. I'm like getting teary about it. He's totally that teacher, but it just speaks to what a difference one caring adult can make that, you know, he got a message this week, some kid he taught like 10 years ago or something is in Costa Rica and wanted him to know that he planted a tree in his honor. Oh. Like what? My husband's like, what is this? Mm -hmm. Like just amazing and sent him this message about you know I remember the things that you talked to me about and I remember the things you were trying to teach me and I didn't understand them then but I understand them now right isn't that I mean yeah it's we're kind of off the resilience topic but it is amazing the small difference that you can make right for somebody Absolutely. Yeah. And at the end of the day, that actually, I think it is a lot about resiliency, actually, because it circles back <laughs> to that idea about belonging. Belong, yeah. We need to be seen. Right. We need to have that attunement to somebody that says, I see you, you matter. I care about you and I want you to succeed, whatever that success looks like for you. So I very much think those practices do cultivate a deep resiliency with a sense of belonging mm -hmm. and a creating community. Well, and I think yeah. also you're giving that connection to the heart that you were also talking about. Yeah. Right. Because you're, you're letting someone feel that they belong, but you're also making them feel something that maybe they haven't felt before Yeah, and, and really becoming in tune with their own feelings and emotions, mm -hmm. which I mean, that's just for, for belonging, you know, I think resonates with everybody, but, but the idea of, and again, I think why I really like stuck to when you're saying time and your values and then talking about yes. the heart and because yeah. we like here in, in our house we talk a lot about feelings and emotions because I am yeah. dealing we did before because yeah. they have a mom who has very big feelings um uh, and I own that they're not always good ones but they they have big feelings that they need to work through and mm -hmm. they need to learn how to work through um mm -hmm. so just Anytime you can get somebody to feel and acknowledge their feeling and leave an, a mark on yeah. someone's heart is really important. And, and I do, I agree. I think it is really important for your resiliency and ties back into this whole idea. Yeah, yeah I agree. Mm -hmm. So if, I guess you've kind of answered, I was going to ask, like if somebody wanted to begin building resilience, mm -hmm where would they start? 
Mm-hmm. It's a great question. So I think when we think about like, where do we even start with resiliency? It's this idea about really practicing that self-awareness, right? Learning that skill set of honoring, like, what are my skills? What are my talents? What are my gifts? What have I already been able to navigate and figure it out in my life? So using our, our past setbacks and challenges as evidence or artifacts that we can do hard things, that we can mm-hmm. bounce back from this, we can move forward in a positive direction. So I think just really tuning into how we feel, what our experiences are, um, just taking that time to slow down because the reality is so many of us are plowing through, getting things done. We're not really present. So again, being present, slowing down to just tune in and to to have these conversations with ourselves to just really think about what do I need? What can I bring to this and how do I move forward? Yeah, I think. I think that's so important. I think you're so right. And just going back to the point you made before about all the messages we pick up, you know, along the way about what we think we're supposed to do as adults, then we become adults and we are functioning on that autopilot of doing the things that we think we're supposed to be doing. Mm -hmm. And you have just recently released a book. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it was my uh, my first go at a non-academic text. And uh, I'm actually very proud of this body of work. It very much is theory, a little bit of research, but also practical, braided with personal story and stories of people I've had a privilege of working with to create very much a, I guess for all intents and purposes, a wee bit of a guide. Uh, we call it um, this idea of a pathway to everyday resiliency. And it talks about the barriers, what gets in the way, what precludes us being resilient and ways that we can cultivate and foster it. So it's chock full of research-informed practices that can help. Mm-hmm. I am, I think, going to have to pick up a copy. <laughs> we will make, we can get you a copy. No I think, problem. I we'll think everybody a, needs a copy. Um, yeah. Especially these days. We'll talk about timing for a topic of a book. Yeah. And again, that's just one of these amazing things about that kind of the synchronicity about how the world all works for good. Um, I had been um, wanting to write this book for a very long time. Interestingly, I actually first released this idea of a book almost a decade ago, actually as fiction right? Just as fiction, as just a story about how a woman experiences resiliency and, and that never landed, which was, which was what it was. And, you know, all of a sudden you had a decade later realizing, no, I need to actually be the voice. This has to be nonfiction. I need to write this from a place of my understanding of it, not based on, you know, somebody else's understanding. And that just came upon during this season of great uncertainty in the world. And uh, yeah, so again, that just that synchronicity of everything working for the right place for the right time and trusting that if it's meant for you and it's meant to happen, it's going to find you. And that very much feels like what this book was for me. It was, it w- it had its own timeline and I just needed to honor that it would make its way into the world when it was right. So I'm very grateful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think now is probably the right time. and obviously before the pandemic, people needed resiliency then too. Of course. Yes. Yeah. People are more aware of it now though. True. I think people are more aware of it and people are really struggling with that on mass. Yeah. This has been a collective trauma. There's no yes. way that we get through yes. this unscathed. We'll teach about it in future history classes. We will be knowledge holders of what this has experience was and very mm. much your, the, the need of resiliency at this frequency of needing it every single day is what very much mm-hmm. I think has come to the forefront right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And that, that idea of the everyday resiliency, not just the, uh, the resiliency when we have like the big trauma, exactly. but the everyday resiliency is so important. And then well, and I, I think it goes back to, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but the idea that we've talked about too, about how trauma is so personal anyway. Yes. So you can't determine what another, when another person needs to be demonstrating resilience, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you. That's okay. Thank you so much for coming and being a guest on the podcast. Yes. Thank we you so much. Really appreciate it. It's been such an honor. Um, I've just loved listening to you. I think you're so intelligent and you really know what you're talking about and your passion for the topic is really so evident. evident. Yeah. 
Oh, well, thank you for this invitation. This has been uh, um, something I was looking forward to. And uh, um, I just, I really celebrate and honor that the good work that both of you are doing, bringing story and shared experience and just the, the power of building community, which you both are doing with your work on this podcast. So I am honored and I give thanks <laughs> for you for doing this important work. Thank Thank you you. so much for saying that. Thanks for listening to Now What? If you've enjoyed this episode, leave us a review. Your ratings and reviews help more people like you find our podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and share this episode with someone you think would love it. And make sure to find us on Instagram at nowwhat underscore podcast. Until next time, we're Tisha and Jen. Remember, your hard times are the chance to write another chapter.